0: So I want to start off, there is a man named Ken Blanchard. He is the author of a famous book, Lead Like Jesus, and he talks about four lies that people believe about ministry. And I know you're thinking, because this is what we're going to be talking about today, but I want you to see how it relates to you. Lie number one, that there is some kind of division between laity, that means like non-church pastors, and clergy, like that there's some kind of difference between secular work and sacred work. And the truth is, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that the Bible talks about how all followers of Jesus are priests of God, that you are all ministers of the gospel. Whether you tap keys for a living, whether you flip burgers, whether you teach, whether you build stuff, that all of us represent, minister Jesus, and are empowered by Jesus. Line number two, that church is only an organization that operates within these four walls of a building. And the truth is Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20 tells us that the church isn't a fortress where religious people huddle, but is to flow outwards to permeate every aspect of our society and our lives, to bring God's kingdom, the good news about Jesus to all places and all people. Lie number three, that there's some kind of spiritual hierarchy. And if we're honest with ourselves, even before I became a pastor, I believed believe this, as if some types of work or some types of people are more important, more holy than others, that for, for a lot of people's minds, pastors and missionaries are right up the, at the top, and then somewhere towards the bottom, like in the middle, like are all these other different jobs of, of different degrees of, of being a blessing to other people and at the bottom, maybe people who work in entertainment or lawyers or something like that, right? Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> Not me. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, the truth is that all work… God says, is an act of worship, that everything we do, like whatever you're doing in your workplace, is a way for you to honor God, to glorify God, to help people experience Jesus through you in your work. Line number four is that we're to work to simply earn a paycheck, and then we give money to the quote-unquote real ministry. And the truth is, That your work, where you are, is your real ministry. That's where God wants you. That is where God has sovereignly placed you to bless and impact people for Jesus. Now, why are we talking about this? Because I want you to understand that the passage this morning is dealing with the Apostle Paul, about him being an apostle and people who work in full-time ministry. But I want you to see that it also applies to all of us who love and serve Jesus because you and I are called to minister the gospel, the good news about Jesus to the world. And so if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are Bibles under like every other seat. And if you don't own a Bible at home, you can take that Bible with you. These are the Bibles that we give away to people if you don't have one. And we're in this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict, to see our lives through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we learned from the beginning of this this, uh, book that the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in the city of Corinth about instead of being blinded by the world's values, to see ourselves clearly through our identity in Christ, that as you are loved— as you are forgiven, as you are accepted, as you are transformed through His death on a cross, that He guides us and grows us in both holiness, that's living distinct for Him, and unity as a church together, so that we're distinct from the world. And He shows us how this relates in all kinds of areas of life. He's talked about when there's division within the church family, when there is sin, when there's conflict, sex issues, relationship issues, controversies. And so last time we talked about how Paul is teaching us that Christian living and Christian decisions are not a checklist about how much legalism is required, how much liberty is permitted, but instead how much love is practiced in applying knowledge from God for the good of other people, understanding our spiritual influence on those around us, in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools. And so today it's going to seem like kind of a tangent, like Paul is going to go off about defending his own apostolic authority to the Corinthian church because they're constantly opposing him. That's what a lot of this letter is about, is them kind of saying, yes, but uh, I know you said this, Paul, but we think otherwise. But really what's happening here is he's going to continue addressing the same issue that we saw in chapter 8, discerning how our attitude, our actions, our decisions in Christ affect other people around us, and then specifically how we love, serve, and bless and minister Jesus to other people. So, I'm going to read a big chunk, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, as Paul did on the road to Damascus? Are not you the Corinthians, my workmanship in the Lord. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship, apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, like James, half-brother, and Cephas, also known as Simon Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, to have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law of God say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything uh, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So What's happening here is uh, you remember that Paul has instructed the Corinthian church in chapter 8 that he would rather give up his right to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols than cause other people who maybe that's an issue to stumble in their faith. But the Corinthians are continuing to undermine him Why should we bother listening to you, Paul? You're not an apostle like the 12 disciples who were with Jesus all that time. And an apostle is simply, in the Bible, uh, those who Jesus has given the responsibility and authority to establish, educate, and govern the churches through the teaching of God's word. And so the question is how does Paul respond to this? In verses 1 to 3, he says, Aren't I free to be able to enjoy meat or refrain from meat that's sacrificed to idols? Aren't I a genuine apostle? like the other guys, who also, I personally encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, excuse me, I also was commissioned to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 9, and so he's also saying the Corinthians, their faith, them coming to know Jesus, is an official notarizing seal, the evidence that proves his apostleship, what God has been doing through his ministry. Now, here's where the area of contention comes up. This is going to kind of color the whole passage that we're going to read this morning. In verses 4 through 6, as an apostle, don't I also have the right to have my daily needs met? To marry a believing wife. You remember that Paul is single. He talks a lot about singleness in chapter 7. Just like James and Simon Peter. Don't I also have the right to be paid a livable livable wage instead of needing a second job? Because you might remember Barnabas and Paul, they worked as tent makers to cover all of their own expenses. And then he moves on in verse 7 to give examples in everyday life. Like, there's other people who also work in service to other people, soldiers, farmers, shepherds, and they get fed from their work. How much more so than somebody who, whose fruit, whose flock, whose service is spiritual and eternal? Yes, Paul, but that's kind of a worldly perspective. You're using examples from the world. What does God actually say about it? In verses 8 through 12, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, that we don't muzzle an ox when it's treading the grain, that it's fed from the field that it's working from, and he teaches us, well, it's not really about the ox. God doesn't really care about cows that much. What he really cares about is the people who plow and reap the gospel spiritually, who are trusting God to provide for their needs tangibly from the harvest. And in fact, he says, the Corinthians are already doing that. They're already supporting their favorite podcast preachers, uh, favorite mission organizations, favorite Christian charities, yet neglecting their own church pastors. So in verses 13 to 14, he says, in both the Old Testament, he cites from Numbers 18, and in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 11, God commands those who are serving in ministry and proclaiming the gospel would make a living from it. And so from examples of kindness and common sense and commands of the Bible, God calls his church to take care of the needs of those who work in the ministry of the gospel. And I was reading this uh, recent study uh, online about top five reasons that pastors quit ministry. Number one was because of the stress and the burnout of, of the, the workload of ministry. Number two, because of family struggles that are caused from um, spending so much time in ministry. Number three, isolation and loneliness. Number four was because there was so much current political divisions within the church that, it, that was tearing their churches apart that was taking its toll on pastors. But number five was their financial struggles. And I've had the privilege to host several groups for pastors in, in, throughout the Bay Area. So sometimes I'll have groups of pastors come and meet at this church. And uh, I've heard many heartbreaking stories of godly shepherds who love Jesus, love their church, love their ministry, but had to quit because they couldn't afford to support their family or their kids in the Bay Area on the salary that they were receiving. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. This is not a plea for money because our church actually has always taken really good care of our pastors. In fact, I want to give you a a report of praise for me that our our board of elders and deacons recently, uh, they spent some time doing some research about comparing salaries uh, nationally and even locally within the Bay Area uh, for pastors to make sure that they increase uh, to a good, not greedy, but a good livable wage for all of our pastors being able to live in the Bay Area. And so our church is very good about things like that but I do want us to understand theologically where Paul is coming from. He spends 14 verses, most of this passage, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but a lot of this passage uh, showing us how important it is, how it's biblically commanded for us to take care of those who work in ministry. Now, it's kind of like, okay, Paul, well, we got it, right? But this sounds an awful lot like salary negotiations between pastors and their church. How does this apply to us? Look at verse 15. But I, Paul, have made no use of any of those rights, nor am I writing uh, these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So after defending all of these 14 verses, defending his right as an apostle, providing for pastors, he flips the script upside down in verse 15. But I, Paul, do not make use of these rights, any of these rights. Nor am I writing to demand them. Rather, I'd rather suffer and sacrifice and die than give up being able to boast in the Lord. What is he boasting about? Verse 16 and 17. It's not boasting about being able to preach the gospel because he talks about how some people are paid for it because they freely chose the work of the gospel. But for Paul, it's God's calling, not his choosing. He's not a a volunteer worker. He didn't volunteer to work in this. He's more like a servant who is conscripted to this type of ministry. He's stewarding the resources of another, and so he's working for the gain of his master, not himself. Well, if that's the case, Paul, then what's your actual reward, or what are you boasting in? Verse 18, I get to preach the gospel free of charge. I'm free to refrain from all the rights that are entitled to a minister of the gospel. What does that mean? It means that I'm not asking for, I don't depend on the financial support of others, that in scraping by on my own, I'm free from criticism that I'm in it for the money or the attention. I'm free from corruption that I'll be swayed by the money or the attention, and I'm free from coercion by special interests by people saying, you know what, we pay you, you owe us. So you need to do things our way. So instead of being bound by others' obligation, what I owe, or my own expectations, what I think I deserve. Verse 19, Paul says, I'm free from these preferences and agendas so that I can love and serve anyone and everyone, regardless of their influence or their affluence, that he might win more people to Jesus. That's what Paul boasts, in. that's what he glories in Christ. I don't know about you, but uh, I follow a lot of politics. I read a lot of the news online, and I think one of the things I find most annoying in politicians is uh, when they're swayed by special interest groups to favor maybe a very unjust policy, even against the will of their own constituents who who voted them in because of a big gift From the oil industry or the gun lobby or from a labor union. And I want to tell you that Paul is saying the same thing can happen in a church, that sometimes there are people with more influence and affluence because they gave a big donation or because they've been leading an important ministry or because they're a longtime member of the church or because they think that they helped to pay the pastor's salary. Now, I want to tell you that doesn't happen in our church. People are very generous-hearted. And so I was scrounging in my mind, what, is, what does that look like? The closest I could think of was uh, many, uh, several years ago, our children's ministry uh, focused on Friday nights on Bible memorization and re- recitation. And what we found was that it wasn't working for many of our neighborhood kids that were starting to come and join our church uh, because, you know, it's hard to know about Jesus, if you have to... uh, It's hard to memorize the Word of God if you maybe have trouble reading the Word of God because we found many of our kids were below uh, their grade level in reading. And so we decided, through a lot of prayer, a lot of planning, to scrap our children's program on Friday nights and redesign it from the ground up. Now, uh, this is the closest I've ever come to experiencing something like this. A long-term member came to me, and they were very upset. And they threatened, you know what? We're going to pull our kids out of the kids' program and we're going to change churches. Now, as a pastor, I would love to exert my right to defend myself, to defend the vision of the church, but really, what's my motivation there? I just want to obliterate somebody's argument and ego, right? It's self, kind of self-centered. But instead, how I felt Jesus prompting me and teaching me and convicting me is can I understand and value their heart, their hurts, their values, their needs. And so having a conversation with this parent, you know what, I really understand your concerns. I also like this program, and, I'm, and I, my kids are coming up into children's ministry as well, and I want them to be able to know and grow in Christ. But what if we can meet both the needs of our neighborhood kids and our kids who are raised in church? And instead of doing this recitation, memorization program that meets One learning style, what if we could hit all different kinds of kids' learning styles? So we designed a program that has different types of elements to help kids who are more audio learners, who are more visual, who are more uh, academic, who are more play-oriented or activity-oriented. What if we could do this together? And it was so cool seeing God work on this mother's heart as they came around and said, you know what, I'm willing to give this a try if you're going to do this with your kids too. But what I think I discovered was that by surrendering my rights, it transformed an adversary, a potential adversary, into an ally. And isn't that what Jesus does? That even when you feel like you are right, you can surrender your rights and discover that we could serve both neighborhood, uh, neighbor, neighbors and brothers by being a servant to all. And so, I want to think about for you as you come to love and serve Jesus by loving and serving people, what are the rights, what are the rewards that you need to surrender to Jesus so that you'll be free from your preferences or prejudices, free from your temptations or distractions to favor some people's interests and eternity over others? Do you need to surrender your right to just love and serve people that I like or people that are like me culturally, financially, educationally, maybe even personality-wise? Do I need to surrender my reward of receiving thanks because I tend to show Jesus' truth and love mostly to people who acknowledge and appreciate me over those who don't? And I want you to see how this applies at home too, parents or spouses that sometimes we Treat some people with the love of Christ and, and the truth of Christ one way because they appreciate us and acknowledge us while others don't. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I don't mind being a servant to all people. I really like people, and I'm not as, um, as lame or as prejudicial as you are, Pastor Josh. Um, but maybe the, the, th- the issue for you isn't about serving all people, but about being able to surrender certain rights. And so I want you to fill in the blank here. Because I serve and obey Jesus, I deserve fill in the blank. I deserve thanks. I deserve to get married. Jesus, I've been serving you faithfully. Why haven't you given me the right spouse yet? I deserve to have children. I deserve to have a good job. I've been serving you faithfully. Or because I serve and obey Jesus, I don't deserve to have cancer. I don't deserve to have experienced this loss. What are the rights that you hold on to, that you feel like I deserve this in order to serve and minister and obey Jesus in that? Okay, Paul, you want us to be a servant to all people. What does that look like then for us? I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. That's one of my favorite verses. Verse 20. He says, this is how you become a servant of all people. To Jewish people and those under the law, that means like non-Jewish people who converted to the Old Testament law of Judaism, that I became like them. Now Paul aren't you already Jewish by birth? Yes, but as a Christian, I'm free in Christ because the law has been fulfilled already, not by my ability and morality, but by Jesus who paid the price for all our law-breaking, all of our sin at a cross. But he's willing to sacrifice all of his freedoms from their cultural traditions and restrictions when he's ministering to them, when he's around them. And so that means that he'll practice speaking Aramaic language and Jewish customs. He'll eat kosher, even though he feels free to have a pork chop when when he's with his uh, non-Jewish friends. But for the reason of, I don't want them to feel like I'm spitting in their face so that it will open doors to connect with them and to tell them about Jesus. Verse 21, to those outside the law. In other words, people who have no Jewish or Bible background, who are far from God, I come to them outside the law. Now, what that doesn't mean is I don't go and get wasted with my friends at the bar so that they won't think I'm a religious weirdo, and then then they'll listen to me. No, they won't, because then there's nothing different about your life in Christ. Why should they become like you when you're already just like them? So, what Paul is saying here is not a license to sin and do whatever you please, but now I'm under the law of Christ, that He traded my sinfulness for His righteousness that transforms me to grow in holiness, not perfect yet, but growing in holiness so that I don't avoid sinful people, but so that I can embrace them. Because sometimes we think, like, being holy, like, as you grow in Christ means that I should separate myself out from all the the unholiness of the world. That's what Pharisees thought. That's how Pharisees treated Jesus. Like, we are so good at following the rules, and we don't want to be dirtied by by people's sins that's not what Jesus does. Being under his law transforms us and frees us so that we don't avoid people who sin, but we embrace them. Verse 22, he says, to those who are weak, this is talking about people from chapter 8 we talked about last time. In other words, those who are vulnerable in their conscience to old temptations like idolatry and addiction, things like that. I'm willing to sacrifice some of my freedom by being considerate and careful around these brothers or sisters for their sake, so that I'm not a stumbling block to their conscience. And we talked about what that looks like last time. But the key here in verse 22 to 23 is Paul says, I became all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some." Why? For the sake of the gospel, so that people can know Jesus, so that people can share with him in the blessings of Christ together, in eternity, in intimacy, in his family, forever. And so the point here is that we want to surrender our rights so that we're free to go and meet people where they are with Jesus and with the gospel. That Jesus Instead of valuing my freedom in Christ, that I'm willing to move out from my comfort zone and enter into other people's world by being sensitive to their context, to their culture, to their interests, to their hurts, to their needs. So, give you an example. So, many of you know, being a church pastor, it's weird because, like, (laughs) people don't want to be friends with the pastor. So most most of my friends are here at church. Um, All my favorite people are here uh, because this is what I do for a living. And so I have to be very intentional about making friends outside of church. And so before the pandemic, I used to go to spend a lot of time at Starbucks. And uh, many of you know that uh, even though I stand up here and talk in front of you every week, um, I'm actually kind of a high introvert. I don't really, it's not that I don't like people, but I just kind of prefer to sit quietly at Starbucks by myself and enjoy my coffee, enjoy a book. If, uh, you know, someone looks like they want to talk to me, it's kind of like, like I make sure, like I kind of bury myself in my book a little bit more. But Jesus has been working on me for many years, and so before the pandemic, uh, I knew that God was prompting me, you know, there, there aren't a lot of uh, regular comers to the Starbucks right on a Street, and, um, um, uh, a Street and Mission, but the baristas are there all the time. And so uh, he started prompting my heart to really get to know a lot of the baristas who work there regularly and, uh, and just to meet people where they are. And so I'm going to change a person's name, but there's a woman named Carrie that God really put on my heart to get to know. She's gay. And she knew that uh, I'm a Christian, that I probably don't condone her lifestyle or her sin, but we spent a lot of time talking together, laughing together. Um, In fact, she made a homemade uh, stuffed octopus that I was able to give to my wife as a gift. And we're friends, even on Facebook, surprisingly, right? And then came a morning where uh, I came to get my morning coffee as usual, and she was in tears because she had recently broken up with her girlfriend. Lord Jesus, how do you want me to respond in this moment? Now, a lot of you who are Christians get these weird ideas about how we should treat people but all I know is from this passage and the way that God was prompting my heart, came up to her and felt prompted by Lord Jesus. Do you need a hug this morning? Give her a big hug. And I earned the right because of that friendship to ask her, can you let me pray for you that we would pray to Jesus to give you peace in the midst of your pain? Because that is one of the promises that he gives if you will seek him that He will give you peace. And she asked me, but what if I don't believe in Jesus or if I don't believe in prayer? It doesn't matter. I do, and I'm the one doing the praying. And so we prayed together. Left at that, give her a big hug. Come back again next week. And instead of like the despair that she was feeling, she came up to me, Josh, I'm so excited to see you. I'm like, you got over that Relationship relief, are you sure? It's like, no, your prayer, it worked. There's something that happened that day when I got home from work. It wasn't that I forgot about my ex girlfriend, but my heart, that heaviness, started to lift and I started to feel calm and that my life was still worth living. Thank you. Your prayer worked. And I said, don't thank me. Thank Jesus. And then she asked me, would I be welcome to come? To your church?" I don't know, would she? You see, Jesus doesn't open doors if we're unwilling to move out of our comfort zones and meet people where they are. So, I want to ask you, who has God put in your life, not in your pastor's life, but in your life, that doesn't yet know Jesus? Do you know that your ministry is not just inviting them to church here, but to be the gospel out there, to meet people where they are? Don't you know that's exactly what Jesus does? That we couldn't reach God by being good enough or holy enough, so what he he does is he reaches down to us. He came down to us to meet us where we are. That God became a man. He forfeited his right to stay in heaven. He became a man. He became like us, not in our sinfulness, but living sinlessly, speaking truthfully, loving generously, dying sacrificially for our sin, rising victoriously from the grave so that you and I can experience forgiveness and acceptance and life and fulfillment forever for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And so, like Jesus, I want to encourage you. How do you need to move outside of your comfort zone and enter into someone else's world, their life? Get to know their interests, their joys, their pain, and find that Jesus might open a door wide open for them to also get to know Jesus. Now, Paul closes this passage in interesting way. He's telling us we are to embrace sinful people, but in your ministry, don't embrace sin in your own life. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, This kind of a, a crown of leaves, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In verse 24, here's the thing about the ancient city of Corinth. They held every couple of years of the, what's called the Isthmian Games. You don't know what that is? It's like the Olympics. It's kind of like in the in-between years between the Olympics, they would be the host for these type of uh, athletic and music competitions. And so the picture is very clear in the Corinthians' minds that many people can run in a race, but only one gets to ultimately win the prize in the Isthmian Games. That as we follow Jesus, we also want to run in such a way that we receive our ultimate prize in Christ, which is far greater, far more valuable, eternal life with Him, in Him forever. So what does that look like? In verse 25, uh, you're not just somebody that, I know that someone in our congregation has done this, but you don't just wake up one day and just say, you know what, I think I feel like running a marathon, and then go do it, right? Right, Andrew Wong? and so uh, most people don't do that but athletes what they do when they're competing for this type of big game is they exercise self-control they're strict with their diet with their training even with their rest all so that they can obtain this little olympian crown that's made of leaves that's withering plants that are temporary that perish so how much more should you and i be pursuing a holy life in Christ when what we're chasing after is imperishable and eternal. And so Paul says in verse 26 and 27, don't just run around in your life at like randomly like an aimless headless chicken. <laughs> or don't be like that guy who gets into a ring with an opponent and instead of landing punches in your face you're just kind of boxing the air. That's pointless. And that's how unfortunately many of us live our lives. But instead, like an athlete, we're intentional about disciplining our bodies from sin and temptation. You know what your weaknesses, your flaws are. And so you come before God and ask Him to help you grow and work through your life in holiness and in self control so that we're not just saying one thing about Jesus and then living something completely different. Now, stay with me now. Here's the point of this part of the passage. I used to think that this passage was about, oh, okay, we need to practice what we preach so that we'll be a good testimony to other people. That's not the the point of this passage. The emphasis, if you look at it, is after preaching the gospel to others, lest I be disqualified, I myself be disqualified from receiving the prize of eternal life. Whoa, Paul, wait a minute. Does that mean that you have to earn eternal life or that there's some possibility that I could lose it? If I, if I came to believe in Jesus already? No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not, we're not pursuing holiness or a, a holy life to earn God's love or his salvation, but in response to receiving his love and his salvation as a gift, we want to pursue holiness. Do you understand? Like so many people think of religion as, this is what I need to do in order to gain God's love and his salvation. But God is saying, here's my love and salvation if you just believe in Jesus, and in response to that, we want to pursue a holy life. What he is saying is that if you don't live like you love Jesus, trust Jesus, obey Jesus, it might be because you don't. You don't really love, trust Jesus. It may turn out that you never had genuine salvation or relationship with Jesus because if you really believe in Jesus and have his salvation, it's only something we receive by faith, but the evidence of, it is, of evidence of it is our faithfulness. And so the point here is that as we want to serve Jesus, as we want to minister the gospel, just like Paul is commanding people to do, that we surrender our right to appear spiritually fruitful so that we will pursue being spiritually faithful in being self-controlled from our sin in genuinely living out the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. I want you to get that because many of us If you're like me, we stumble, we fall all the time. It's easy to kick yourself, feel discouraged. Understand that you're living out a process of God increasingly working in your life. So don't beat yourself up that way. But he's not saying that you shouldn't do ministry. He's just saying don't just do ministry and substitute that for your life in Christ. That it's not an either or, it's a both and that we can't be genuinely fruitful in ministry if we're not genuinely faithful in pursuing Jesus and his holiness in our lives. And I'll be very honest with you, it's one of the things I'm most guilty of. And so I've been relearning over this past year not to just preach at my wife, but my need to confess and repent of my sin, to draw closer to God, to work on my marriage, that I'm not just called to pray for my kids, But I need to pray for myself to be less angry, less sinful, less busy with my kids. And ministry is like a car that we can't expect to drive very far if we never never refuel the tank, we never change the oil, we never fix what's broken inside. So, are you intentionally seeking Jesus by turning from sin back towards Jesus so that you can grow in holiness? Are you letting secret sins take hold of corners of your heart just kind of hanging around your life and just ignoring it because, well, I still, I'm a pretty good Christian because I serve God in some way. What do you need to confess and repent of and then invite God's Spirit to heal, to empower, to overcome? And for many of us, how are you substituting ministering and serving Jesus for a relationship of knowing and obeying Jesus? Because if you want other people to know and follow Jesus, make sure that you do first. We need clarity about ourselves as ministers of Jesus and the gospel, that as we serve the Lord, we want to show Jesus His love, His truth and His grace to our friends, our family, our coworkers, to neighbors, to strangers. But the key is not about flaunting my freedom in Christ or all my knowledge or my abilities in Christ. It's not my, the strength of my abilities or my, my morality in ministry, but it's in humility, the humil- humility of Christ. And so this morning, may you be free from all, surrendering your rights your rewards, your freedoms, and your comforts, your sinfulness, and your selfishness. Surrender it all, that you're free from all of it to Jesus, so that you can become a servant to all for the sake of other people and the gospel, just like our Lord Jesus. May I pray for you? God, our Father, uh, we know that every single person in this room, you are calling to experience your love, your forgiveness, your salvation, but also your power, your life, and your holiness in us. That there are people you call each of us to minister to, whether a coworker, a family member, a stranger at Starbucks, our own kids or our own spouse. Help us, God, to be men and women who yes, we enjoy so many freedoms and rights and rewards in Christ, but that we're willing to let go of any of it and even all of it when necessary. Because our lives are not about pursuing all the blessings we have in Christ, but pursuing the blesser. That having Jesus is better than all of the good gifts that you give us. And that when we do, There's something real that happens in us that is winsome and beautiful and convincing to people around us, those we love who don't have Jesus yet. So we come before you in humility and ask that you would do a work in our hearts to surrender things that we're holding on to that perhaps you're calling us to let go of for the sake of Jesus and the gospel.